How many of you love Christmas? Oh, only a few. How many of you really love Christmas? I love Christmas. Do you love it when the tree comes out and the lights are on? I love all of that stuff. Don't you? And the candles come out. And you get the crib and the, the baby Jesus. I love Christmas. I love decorating our tree at home. Because on our tree at home we have gifts and we have things that have been made that remind us of so many of our journeys. Our two boys made some of the Christmas tree decorations when they were little. You know, when they went to Sunday school and they, they, were, they had to make the decoration and we still have them. And every year we put them and we place them on the tree. And we remember those days where probably we were in Canada or wherever we were living and, and there's the decorations that they made. One's a little angel made out of a, a little triangle of wood. Angel's lost most of its hair. It's kind of gone bald as I have. I think it's just following my lead. But it was made by one of our boys and we put that on the tree. And then there's little gifts that we bought from all over the place. Or sometimes somebody has made us a Christmas tree decoration. We put that on and we remember them. I love Christmas. I love the trees and the candles. I love the expectation in the children, don't you? They're there. They, they love lighting the candles because it just means there's one less week before Christmas Day finally arrives. I love it on Christmas Eve when we have the Christingle service and I sit at the front with the children. And some of them are just itching. They're so excited they can hardly contain themselves because they know tomorrow Christmas is coming. And they're already there thinking about what presents they might have. If they were like my wife, they would have already ripped open the corner of the present to see what they're going to get. I love Christmas. I love the music that we play once a year. By January, we're so sick of it, we put it away like Brussels sprouts for a whole year until we get it out again. Don't you love Christmas? I love Christmas. I love it all. You know, Christmas that I've just described is all from Luke's gospel. You know that? That's Luke's kind of Christmas. Luke's kind of Christmas are Christmas trees, children playing, angels singing songs. That's Luke. It's beautiful. It's the Christmas that we hope every Christmas will be. But that's not always, and that's not the whole picture of Christmas. Luke is angels singing, it's, it's shepherds coming out with their fluffy lambs, newborn, it's donkeys and innkeepers, it's Jesus all wrapped up in swaddling clothes, lying peacefully in a manger. That was last week's sermon. If you were here last week, I wasn't preaching from Luke, I was preaching from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For we have not been given a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. That's Luke. That's Luke all over. God's given us these gifts. A gift of his dunamis power. The same power that came on Mary, we said last week. 
The same power that the Spirit, that the angel Gabriel said, this is the power of the Spirit that's going to come on you and you will have a child. That same Spirit, that same power has been given to you and me. And he said, not only that, the agape, the the self-giving love of Jesus Christ, the self-giving love of God, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That same love has come on you and me. And to balance it, we have that self-discipline. That's Luke. But today I want to look at the other side of Christmas. We're going to look in Matthew's Gospel. Because Matthew gives the other side of Christmas. Matthew starts off okay. You've got Levi's genes where he does the genealogy of Jesus. And then he goes into the narrative of the birth of Jesus. And then we have the wise men coming. So-called wise men. I don't think they were that wise, to be honest. And I'll explain why in a moment. But they see a star in the east. You know the story, don't you? How many of you have ever been wise men in a nativity service? None of you. That's, that's a poor indictment on the, your academic ability. The wise men come from the east and they follow the star and they wander all around the church until they finally find, well, they don't find the manger, do they? Because the reality is they don't set off until Jesus is born. And I don't think Jesus stayed in a manger for like a year and a half. Kind of would have outgrown it. And I think Mary and Joseph would have got a little bit fed up with sitting in a stable or in a hole in a rock in the side of the, the, uh, in the hillside. So they were living at the time somewhere nearby. And the wise men came and they followed the star. It took them ages. And they finally come and they get to... To Nazareth, and they go, Well, what should we do? Let's go and ask Herod. He must know where the baby must be born. What idiots. Not a single ounce of intelligence in their brain would have meant they go to Herod. Do you know what Herod was like? Herod was a butcher. He'd already killed his wife, had an argument with her. And instead of just slamming the doors and going to separate rooms and saying, you better come and forgive me first, he put her to death because he got fed up with her. Not only that, he was a little bit paranoid about his kingship. So he killed three of his sons because he thought that they might become king instead of him. They might be plotting to overthrow him. And as soon as he got wind of the fact that maybe they had a thought about throwing him out, they put him to death. That's Herod. Not only that, so he killed his wife and his three sons. He also killed his brother-in-law as well. He killed his mother-in-law. We won't say anything about that. You know, there was Caesar Augustus at the time said this. He said, you have a longer life expectancy if you are one of the pigs that Herod kills to go on his table than if you're a member of his family. That was the joke that was around. It's kind of like a soap opera. Everybody living around would have been watching Herod's family. Who is he going to bump off next? He was so evil that on his deathbed, he was lying there dying, still plotting 
about how to kill his other son that was just about to take his position. And not only that, he was so morbid that in his will, he actually wrote that for his funeral, get this, for his funeral, he told them and he wrote in his will that they were to round up all the leaders in Israel and to execute them as part of his funeral service. This is Herod. This is the guy that three wise men, allegedly three, Bible doesn't say, are so wise that they go and say, hey, a new king has been born. Do you know where he is? Now, with a guy with that kind of track record, what do you think Herod is going to do? Oh, let me go and worship him as well. No. He's going to immediately go, a king has been born in my land. I've got rid of all the other people that think they're going to become king. I'm going to get rid of this one as well. So as soon as he was told of the threat, this is what happens. Let's read this from Matthew's Gospel. Oh, oh hang on. Let me read it. Oh, you'll get it on the screen in a sec. Matthew's Gospel. It's on the screen. Oh, wonderful. Look at that. It says, when they are gone, an angel, that's when the, uh, when the wise men are gone, after they'd gone and met with Jesus and, and given him the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Next screen. Okay. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the major, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. The last one, he said, Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. It was an ordinary day in Bethlehem. Try and picture it in your mind. There you are just going around your business and suddenly there's a, a clamor of hoofbeats and a shouts and soldiers start banging on doors, bursting into homes, searching, going in and out without question, unannounced. There's no explanation given. What are you here for? What are you trying to do? What are you trying to find? I've done nothing wrong. There's no warrants, there's no stays of execution, there's no warning, there's no courts of appeal. Any baby, any boy that looks as though they're two years of age or under is dragged out in front of them, in front of his parents, and they just slaughter them there and then on the doorstep or inside the house. No time to go get a birth certificate, no time to check out the details. Yeah, he looks young enough, let's just kill him. 
were under orders. They're murdered, and it's left there for the parents to clean up the mess, to bury their children, their sons, to wipe the blood away from the staining on the floor or outside in the dirt, to try and put their lives back together but never understanding what's gone on, never healing the hurt deep in their hearts. You see, what had once been a royal soap opera that people were probably laughing about, hey, he's bumped off another one of his family, suddenly became a local holocaust. Herod had killed all the boys in Bethlehem. You see, Matthew reminds us that Jesus' birth comes in the middle of a real world. In a world where there is the slaughter of children for political ends. It's as if baby Jesus came to Aleppo today. Or baby Jesus came into a world where more babies are aborted in 30 seconds than were killed on that day in Bethlehem. Or where baby Jesus comes into a world where more children die of hunger every two minutes than died under Herod's command that night or that day. You see, Matthew makes it clear to us that Jesus didn't just come into a fairy tale kind of world with the singing angels and the Christmas trees and the shepherds and the cute little lambs and everything else. But Jesus came into a world of pain and evil. This is not the Christmas story that we like. You don't often see this part of the Christmas story, do you, in the nice nativities that we put on in churches. But it is the Christmas story that we need to hear. Because this is the other side of the real world. It's a world of pain and sorrow. It's a world of political intrigue and deceit. It's a world where children are murdered, where people are imprisoned, where people are tortured and executed just because they utter the simple words today that Jesus is Lord. We see that on our television sets. We know it in our world. And it was no different when Jesus came 2,000 years ago. you put the next screen on, please? You see, both Luke and Matthew are true. It just depends which way you look at the truth of the Christmas story. Luke is true. 2 Timothy 1.7 is true. But so is Matthew, chapter 2, where Rachel is weeping for her children. This is the other side of Christmas. But the question is why? Why would God want this in his word? Why is it important that we look at the other side of Christmas? Why is it so important that God directed Matthew 
to include this in the Christmas story, in the story about Jesus' birth? Well, firstly, I think it's important because it tells us that God will do anything to be with us. In Matthew 1.23, it says, And you will be with child, and you will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's the first dream that God gave to Joseph. You're going to call him Emmanuel, God with us. And he said to him that, that God is going to come not just when things are going well, but he's going to come into the mess of human history. Think about it. God, who was going to send his son, he could have waited any time he wanted in the history of humanity. He could have waited until there was prosperity and peace and everything was going fantastic. There was unity everywhere. That's when I'm going to bring my son. When the kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Wait until things are great. Then I'll bring my son. Then it's ready for him to come. No. He said, I'm going to come in the midst of mess. I'm going to come in the time where you've got a ruler who is so warped and so twisted and so brutal that he's just going to go out and kill people for the sake of it when he feels his own power base may be challenged in a small way. I'm going to come when things are a mess of life, where things are difficult in life. Because I want to show you, I want to remind you, I want to reveal to you that I will do anything to come and be with you. You see, God chose the most volatile time to show us how much He truly loves us. How many of you have had friends? And then when you get into difficult situations, your so-called friends just leave you. You never hear from them again. And you think, well, they were fine friends. They were. How come they, how come they weren't friends? How come they didn't stand by me when I needed them the most? We've all had a known people like that. And maybe sometimes we're guilty of being that person to someone else too. But God says, I'm going to show you how much I care. Because I'm going to come when it is a complete mess. When it's the worst of times, to show you I'm going to stand by you. And you know and I know when we've gone through hard times and our friends are with us in those times, that develops a kind of a bond and a relationship that can stand for eternity. Matthew reminds us first and foremost that the risk God was prepared to pay to come to come and be with you and with me. The second thing that this passage says to us is that good news has enemies. Ephesians 6, verse 12 said, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and rulers of this dark age. That we have enemies. As soon as you side with Jesus Christ, you are going to have enemies. You can't help it. If you're an Arsenal supporter, you cannot be a Tottenham supporter at the same time. There's a Tottenham supporter here. There's an Arsenal supporter on this side. There's a great divide down the middle. You have enemies. You can't sit on the fence and go, 
yeah, I like both of them. Ah, it doesn't work that way. You're at one end or the other. I went to a football match one time. They said, which team do you support? I said, I don't. I'm just here to watch football. Well, they didn't know what to do with me. Well, which end do we place you? I said, I don't care. Just give me a really good seat in the middle. I can't. They wouldn't let me in. They said, because, because we don't know. If you are a secret, you know, away supporter and we place you in the home supporters, there could be trouble. Or if you're a home supporter and we place you in the away supporters, there, there could be trouble there. And I said, well, what about all the neutrals? Apparently in Watford, they don't have neutrals. So they wouldn't let me in. They said, I'm sorry, we can't let you in. So I had to go home. Couldn't buy a ticket. They wouldn't sell one to me, even though the ground wasn't full. You can see, if you side on one side, you can't side on the other. And if you side with Jesus Christ, if you become a follower of Jesus Christ, then you will have enemies. The Bible says you are made an immediate enemy of the devil. Why were the babies killed? They were killed because they lived in the same place as the Son of God. And living in that geographical location of Jesus was enough for them to be associated with Jesus, to be a potential threat, so let's wipe them all out. You see, Jesus is dangerous. You know how many they estimate Christian martyrs there were last year in our world? You know how many? They don't know exact numbers, of course. How many do you think? Martyrs in our world last year. Eight to 10,000 people. Eight to 10,000 believers in Jesus Christ were killed solely because they said, I believe in Jesus. Last year in our world. Probably going up. That's the ones that they know about, they can verify. Who knows how many more? You see, if you say that Jesus is Lord, you immediately make enemies. And the Bible reminds us that if we plant ourselves with Jesus, then there is an enemy that's going to be fighting against us each step of the way. But this passage also reminds us that God associates in our struggle as much as in our victory. Psalm 23, even though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Now notice it's even though I go through the valley. It's not even though I get to the valley, I pray and Lord, you lift me up and you take me out of the valley so I don't actually have to go through it at all. That would be much nicer. That would be Luke, wouldn't it? Lord, I'm at the edge of the valley. I don't want to go through the valley because this is really bad news. Lord Jesus, save me from the valley. David, you're a righteous guy. I'm going to lift you out so you never have to face any valleys at all. And I'm going to place you over here. And I'm just going to catapult you from the edge of the valley into the streams of living water and the pastures and where everything is nice. That's Luke. Matthew says, uh-uh. Even though I go through the valley. I have to wander through it. But the wonderful truth is that God is there with us in those moments too. And Matthew reminds us that there are valleys that we go through. 
But when we go through those valleys, God is with us. That he's promised never to leave us, never forsake us. You see, the Bible teaches that sometimes, sometimes, suffering and sickness and even death serves in some way some greater purpose. Think about the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. There he is being stoned to death. They're killing him. Most brutal, barbaric way. And Saul is watching on. And what happens later in Saul's life? That moment, I'm sure, kept coming back to him over and over again because it says there he is approving of what's happening until he's arrested on that Damascus road. And then he has to live with the consequences of what he's done to God's children. And that is the the fuel that so often spurs him on so that when he's stoned, when he's shipwrecked, when he's going through trouble, he picks himself up and he keeps on going. Somehow God used that terrible event of the stoning of Stephen to touch and prepare Saul's heart so that when Jesus came and he said, Who are you, Lord? He said, You're the one I'm persecuting. Who do you think he was thinking of in those moments? He's thinking of Stephen, the guy where he was holding the cloaks of those who were taking their jumpers off to keep on stoning him to death. God used that to start the process in Saul's heart to become Paul. In Romans, Paul says to us, Romans chapter 5, let me read this to you, just a few verses. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now listen to this. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our suffering. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. And character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us. Because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. Paul says that sometimes suffering produces the fruit that we need in our lives. How many of you have ever done something where you've just become perfect at it the first time you've ever done it? First time you got on a bicycle, you just rode off and said, I'm going to just cycle around Europe. You know? It's not like the uh, Forrest Gump moment, is it? Where you just start running and then you just keep running. Life is not that simple. We wish it was. You know, how many of you could come up here and start playing the keyboard? Never played a keyboard before, and then you suddenly make Ronnie redundant. I've got the gift. Thank you, Lord. I can play like a concert pianist. It doesn't happen. It takes practice and diligence, and it takes struggle. And as we struggle, then we, that God produces that perseverance, and that perseverance keeps working in us, and, and he matures us, and he helps us to grow. And you know, and I know, that when I've gone through... And when you've gone through difficult times, your faith grows, your character grows. It's an opportunity for you to grow that you don't have when we're not going through those moments. Sometimes, sometimes there's struggle. Sometimes there's sickness. Sometimes there's even death because it serves to build that greater purpose. 
Or 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 7 to 10. Paul talks about the thorn in the flesh. And he prayed and he said, Lord, take this from me, whatever this was. And then it, God says to him, no, it's so that you, that you may learn that my grace is sufficient. That my grace is made, or your weakness is made strong because you stay weak. Because I'm going to keep you like this. Because you're going to stay dependent on me. And you need to be dependent on me. Then, through that, I'm going to bring that blessing. It'll be a channel of blessing in your life. You see, believers, we so often fall into a Luke or Matthew category. When the Bible teaches both. The Luke category says, you know what? I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for Pam's healing today. And if Pam doesn't get healed, then there must be something wrong with Pam because there can't honestly be anything wrong with me, can there? You know, that's the Luke kind of thing. Look, God has given me the spirit of dunamis power, the miraculous power of God. When Jesus prayed for people, they were healed. So I'm going to pray for Pam. She's going to be healed. And if she's not healed today, then there's something wrong with Pam. Because there can't be anything wrong with me, and there's certainly nothing wrong with my theology, is there? Because it's in the Bible. And so we have the Luke people like that. Then you have the Matthew people over here. Well, I'm going to pray for Luciano today. But actually, you know what? I'm not even going to pray for his healing because God doesn't heal anymore. I know he healed back then, but that's kind of like just written back then. That was the kind of way they thought. So Lord, just uh, be with Luciano. Amen. There I've prayed for him. That's the Matthew kind of prayer. But the Bible doesn't teach one extreme or the other. It teaches both. Doesn't it? It teaches Christmas trees, angels, all that stuff, Luke, but it also teaches Matthew. So what do we do when we pray? Well, we pray like Luke, but we have the compassion of Matthew, right? So we pray for Pam and we say, Lord, we really want Pam healed. Amen? Amen. Because we know Pam's struggling. We know Luciano's struggling. So we're going to pray for them both the same. So I'm going to pray with an expectancy that God is going to do something because God loves to do things in people's lives. I'm going to pray like Luke. I'm going to say, yes, Lord, send your dunamis power into these two people and bring your wholeness and your healing. That was last week's sermon, yes? But if God doesn't heal them, if, if God somehow doesn't heal them the way I want him to heal them, i.e. not miraculously right now, bang, they're out of here, they're pushing their wheelchair out, kind of healing, then I'm not going to say, well, there must be something wrong in your lives. I'm going to say, you know what? I'm also going to pray for the power of God, the miraculous power of God to keep you going through these things. I'm going to pray that God will strengthen you day by day. I'm going to pray that God will be so infused in you that while you're going through the valley of the shadow, you may know his presence. You may know his rod and his staff that are going to lead you and comfort you and protect you and help you day by day. I'm not going to stop praying that you're not going to be healed miraculously because that's what you want, that's what I want. But equally, I'm not going to stop praying, God, that you surround and that your ways are so much greater. And I don't see them always the way you see them. And so unless you tell me otherwise, I'm going to keep on praying. 
It's a both and. Do you understand? Not an either or. And if we're in danger of doing either or, what happens is we hurt people so badly. That's why Matthew and Luke are both there together. Because Luke is one side, Matthew is the other side, and God says, stick them both together. Yes, there's wonderful, miraculous power in Jesus' birth. But yes, there is pain and suffering too. Because the Son of God came into the world. Neither one of those is better. You know that? Neither one. If I pray for Pam, for the miraculous healing power of God, and she is healed, praise the Lord. But if I pray for the miraculous power of God to keep her going through everything that she needs to go through, praise the Lord too. Because I don't know the kind of witness that she is going to be going through something with the power of God on her. I have seen people that have gone through struggle that have been such a witness in my life because of the way they have just taken the power of God day by day into their lives and said, your grace is sufficient. They prayed that same prayer that Paul prayed. My father-in-law was one of those. I used to say, how do you survive? How do you cope? He says, David, I cope by praying day by day for enough strength to get me through till tomorrow. I just pray, God, your grace, I want it to be sufficient for today. And that's the way he kept on praying till the Lord took him home. And then he didn't have any more sickness and he was transformed. He was a witness because of the way he held himself, because of the way that God used him. Through those struggles. Yes, there's a witness sometimes when we're miraculously healed. Praise the Lord for that. But there is a witness also when we're taken through the valleys. And praise the Lord for that too. Both need our prayer. Both need the dunamis power of God. For the blessing and the testimony that can come. Matthew reminds us that God is there in our struggle. Also reminds us too of God's leading. God is always there in the midst of it. Look what happens to Joseph. Four times Joseph gets a vision and a dream. In Matthew 1 he gets it where he's told the name Emmanuel, God is with us. This is, this is the son, you've got to stay with Mary. And then we read the second one today, get up, go to Egypt. And then after Herod dies, he gets another vision that says, get up, come back. And you know, Herod's son, Antipater, was even worse than Herod. So he's there going, like, Lord, what are you talking about going back? This guy's even worse than his father. And he says, don't go back there. Go back up north to Nazareth. Don't go to Bethlehem. Go back to Nazareth, and there you'll be safe. God reminds us that he is always leading you, always leading me. And lastly this. That this passage powerfully reminds us that God doesn't shy away from sin or its consequences. But God tackles it head on. That was a terrible, terrible day in Bethlehem that day, wasn't it? Rachel weeping for her children. Heaven weeping for those lost loved ones. Murder everywhere. But just as those babies were killed in violence and blood and pain that day at birth. 
So Jesus, even though he was protected in that moment, 30 years later, would take that same journey. That day, those babies were killed in front of their parents. 30 years later, what happened to Jesus? He was whipped. He was beaten. A sword, a spear was placed in his side. Nails were placed through his hands and his feet. He was murdered in front of his mother and in front of his followers. Jesus was protected in that moment, only for a short time. But through his death, through going through the same thing, if you like, that those babies went through, those young boys went through, he dealt with Herod's sin, with his son's sin, with your sin, with my sin. Through his pain and his death, where he was ripped away from his earthly mother, but also his heavenly father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He won for us through that death and through the resurrection, through coming back three days later. He won for us. a relationship with him for all eternity. He won for us the power and the strength to go through struggles. He won for us his love, his agape love that we spoke about last week. He won for us his help, his forgiveness, where we need it the most. You know, today, that Messiah... The Messiah who was whisked away all those years ago but came back to die 30 years later. That same risen Messiah today invites you. He invites you to come and to share your struggles. To receive forgiveness where you need forgiveness. To receive the strength the dunamis strength where you need it, where you're tired of the struggle that you're going through. And you need to reach out and say, Lord, give me the strength I need. Maybe just for one day at a time, but give it to me. And he invites you today to receive the transformation where you need a touch from him, a touch of that dunamis power within you and a touch of that agape kind of love within you so that you can be the people he's calling you to be. I love Christmas. I love Luke. I must confess. But I need Matthew. I love Luke because I love all the stuff that goes with it. I love the excitement of the children and the presents and everything else. And sometimes what we do at Christmas is we try and leave Matthew behind and pretend that our world for one moment is all Luke, don't we? We come in and everything has to be perfect. Everything has to be neat. Everything, we just, we waste so much energy in making Christmas Day a Luke kind of day so that we can just escape Matthew for one moment. New Year, 
We go back to Matthew, don't we? Depression hits in. Highest suicide rate comes in January. Because the Luke is over and we're back to another year of Matthew. But the Bible says, you know what? Jesus came both to bring Luke every day into your life. I have come that you might have joy, have life, have it to the full. But came too in that realistic way to say that I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Whatever struggles you may go through, I'm going through them with you. And I will give you my grace and my power and my love to see you safely through. I'm going to invite Ronnie to come and, and just play. And as he does so, I'm going to invite you today. If you need a touch from God today, why don't you just come up to the rail? Someone will come and pray with you if you want prayer. If you want to just be on your own, that's fine. Just be on your own. But let's just have a moment. Maybe you're going, maybe you're in a Matthew moment in your life where it's hard going. Come and just say, Lord, this is me. Thank you that you come into those moments too. That you bring your presence into those moments too. Come, Lord. Give me what I need today so that I may go through whatever I'm going through and gain the victory on the other side. But we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.